0: Hebrews chapter 9, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time accordingly both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, There must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, It was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him, Let well, the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well join me in prayer, please. Our triune God, we do come before you and praise you for this salvation, planned before eternity began, accomplished by Christ and now mediated by him and applied by his spirit father we thank you for all the blessings that come our way because of this god what do we have that we have not received you are the giver of good gifts and all your gifts are good god we thank you that you have taken it upon yourself to care for us and to provide for us not only in this life but in the life to come Preparing us even now for that. We thank you, Father, for your provision. We thank you for the promises that still await us. We thank you, Father, that you have, as Ron alluded to earlier this morning, moved us from the camp of darkness into the kingdom of light. And God, there you you surround us. You care for us. We praise you. Father, we need lots of care. We are needy, dependent children. But God, we find all of our needs met in you. We ask God that you help us this morning. Even as we come to your word, as clear as it is, often, God, we don't really comprehend spiritual truth except you teach us. God, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and receive it, to feed upon the glorious truths of Christ. May our souls be strengthened, our faith established. God, we pray that you would open eyes that have never seen, to see now, to believe now, to rest upon all that Christ has won, and to find life. We'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. In Philippians 1.27, Paul told the Philippians, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. After giving that general command, the Apostle Paul began to unpack it a bit, explaining what that would look like for the Philippians in their context. He first tells them, How they are to conduct themselves before the world, before unbelievers in Philippi. Then he tells them how to conduct themselves within the church body to one another. He tells them that they are to do this by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Following these instructions will require a humility of mind that was not natural to the Philippians any more than it is natural to us. So Paul points them to the source of strength for this kind of humility and the pattern for this kind of humility. He points them to Jesus. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled Himself by becoming, to the, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We will soon wrestle with the Bible's descriptions here of how low Jesus humbled Himself. For right now, we have been looking at why, why Jesus humbled Himself like this. What was the purpose? What did He achieve? We see in Philippians 2, 8 that he, His humbling of Himself leads to death. Even death on a cross. The cross is mentioned not just as the symbol of His death or as the instrument of His death, but also to tell us something about the nature of His death. How does it do that? Well, because the Bible says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, quoting Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ on the cross becomes a curse redeeming us from the curse of the law. And so it's telling us something about the nature of His death. He hangs on a tree, cursed of God. Why? What's He accomplishing? Well, we've seen three reasons from Scripture so far. First, Jesus died on the cross, shedding His blood to rescue us from the wrath to come. Wrath, the justice of God, the curse of the law. Wrath that is justly due us because of our sin. Wrath from which there is but one escape, and that is in the means that God Himself has provided, Jesus Christ. You escape to Jesus, and in escaping to Jesus, you escape from the wrath of God. The second reason that Jesus sheds His blood is to provide an atonement, He atones for our sin to God. When a person comes to God and is forgiven, God doesn't just forget about their sin and pretend that it did not happen. That's how people often attempt to deal with their own sin. Have you ever said this or heard someone say, we'll just pretend that didn't happen and we won't talk about that again? Well, if you say that, that's exactly what you're doing. You're pretending. God doesn't pretend. And so he actually deals with sin by providing for himself an atonement. He sends his son to die, to appease his wrath, and to reconcile God to you and us to God. Third, Jesus died on the cross, shedding his blood to wash away our sin and its uncleanness. This was David's plea. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And clean, we are fit to come into God's presence. Well, this brings us to this morning and the fourth reason, the final reason we'll look at as to why Jesus humbles himself dying on the cross. And for that, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews presents Jesus as superior to what has come before. It demonstrates His superiority as a person, as a priest. His superiority as the mediator over a new covenant, a better covenant. And His superiority as a sacrifice. In chapters 8 through about the middle of chapter 10, Jesus is presented as the mediator of a better covenant And this falls within a larger section that describes his superiority as a priest over the the priesthood of Aaron and and all of his descendants. And it gives a bunch of reasons why that I won't read to you right now. (laughs) You can read them for yourself. But chapter 9 and verse 15 begin with these words. For this reason. Or your translation may say, therefore. For what reason? Therefore, based on what? Well, he's pointing back to the previous paragraph where in verse 12, he speaks of the fact that Jesus has obtained an eternal redemption resulting in verse 14 with your conscience being cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. He's purchased redemption. He's cleansed you so that you can serve God. Therefore, or because of this or for this reason. And we have verse 15. And in verse 15, he gives us a condition that has been met, and that condition being met in the death of Christ, and that is the condition itself, uh, there's a result. So there's a, a, a condition that's met and a necessary result that follows it. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, That were committed under the first covenant. There's a condition met. A death has taken place. Result. Those who have been called. May receive the promise. Of the eternal inheritance. So. Jesus condition. The condition that he meets. He dies. He has died. Redemption has occurred. The redemption of the transgressions. That were committed under. The first covenant. Now Jesus' blood provides for the forgiveness of all the sins of all his people. Past, present, and future. We see this in many places in scripture. But here he's speaking specifically of those who transgressed the law under the first covenant. Or under the law of Moses. The people who there were given commands to obey under the penalty of the curse under the penalty of death there are all these Old Testament sacrifices but they don't actually cleanse we read it a moment ago they don't actually cleanse the conscience verse 9 they cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience they all look forward to a better sacrifice that has to come and so in verse 15 he tells us basically it has come A death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. It's the same point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 3. When he speaks of Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness Because in the forbearance of God or in the patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God passed over their sins. How could he do that? Well, he does it because Jesus was the surety for those people. And he would come and he would offer the better sacrifice. God waits patiently knowing that Christ will come and bear their sin. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that's taking place. A death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. And then the result. So that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Why has Jesus died? Well, we've listed several reasons already, but here's another at the end of verse 15. That those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jesus dies to provide an inheritance for His people. All the blessings of God, all the covenant blessings are also termed here an inheritance that passed to us at the death of Christ. Jesus died to save us from the wrath to come. He He died to provide us with an atonement. To cleanse us from the defilement of sin. And to provide all those who believe in His name. With an eternal inheritance. Now if you think about your Bible. You can probably think of some other places where the Bible speaks of this. The idea of an inheritance. In Acts chapter 20. As Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. As he concludes his, his talk with them and and bids them farewell he says and now i commend you to god and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified in acts 26 to king agrippa as he is telling him about God's call upon his life, how God rescued him and saved him and sent him to the Gentiles, he says that he sent him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. In Ephesians 1. We're told that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. And if you are a child of God and an heir of God and this inheritance is yours, then um, it is yours. But if you're not a child of God, then the inheritance is not yours. You're not an heir. And Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For this you know with certainty... That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater, which really was all of us apart from Christ, right? Those people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 1, The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so on and so forth. So, There are a number of passages that speak about this this fact. There's this inheritance that's yours. And Hebrews 9 tells us that it's yours because Christ has died. Last Sunday when we talked about Jesus becoming an atonement. Providing reconciliation. We talked about how reconciliation is the floodgate that opens all the blessings of God to you. You're in the place of God's favor if you've been reconciled to Him. If you're not reconciled to Him, you're under His curse. But in Christ, you have been reconciled and the blessings of God flow to you. But now I want you to see that Jesus' death does not just put you in the place of favor so that favor could come your way. But Jesus' death makes you an heir to the promises of God, guaranteeing you blessing if you have been reconciled to Him. Reconciled to Him, you have become an heir of God. Romans 8, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. To be the child of God is to be the heir of God. Not the child of God, Not the heir of God. So in Hebrews 9, verse 15, the author introduces the idea, this concept of the promise of the eternal inheritance. And then he does something very interesting. He changes his language from the language of covenant to the language of last will and testament. Here is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may wonder, what's a last will and Testament? Some of you kids may not know. A will is something that is a document, maybe, that you prepare and say, when I die, here's where my stuff goes. Here's what you do with the things I leave behind. I got to wondering what was the difference in a will and a Testament. Some of you may know I didn't. I'm probably going to get this backwards because I didn't write it down. But now, it's, I think the terms are practically interchangeable. But there was a time when a will, I believe it was, spoke to real property. So if you owned a piece of real estate, the will told how to disperse your real estate. A testament dealt with personal property, but now interchangeable. Am I right, lawyers? Yes? Don't know, maybe. <laughs> anyway, um, so here is the, the testament or the will of the Lord Jesus And if you're reading in the ESV, you'll notice in verse 15, you have the word covenant. But in verse 16 and 17, you have the word will. Or King James, New King James, it changes from covenant to testament. The New American Standard keeps the word covenant throughout. Because that's how the word is usually translated. And there's a play on words here. Because the same word in Greek can be translated either way depending on context. So he's been talking about the covenant and Jesus being the mediator of a new covenant, verse 15. But then he talks about an inheritance and it's obvious he changes the use of the word because look what he says in verse 16 and 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Well, is death necessary for a covenant? All covenants? We talk about marriage being a covenant When you get married, does someone have to die? But if you have a will, does someone have to die? In order for the will to be enforced, yes. And that's what he says in verse 17. For a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. You see the point? Yes? Yes? As long as the person who makes the will is alive, the will's not in force. You could be told that you have this great, rich, lost uncle, right? The the lost uncle. And he is leaving you everything. Millions in cash and investments, in real estate, houses, art. And you find out you're in his will and all this is going to flow to you. And you think, wow, one day that's all going to be mine. But the key word there is one day because you can't go out and start writing checks right now. Can you if you start writing checks right now, the checks are big enough. They're going to bounce because all of that that is promised to you isn't yours yet. He hasn't died. It's not in force. It's still his. There's only the promise of it to you, but it's not yours yet. But now listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. A death has occurred. So that the promise of the eternal inheritance is yours. The testator, the one who wrote the will, has died. And so the will is in force. There are a number of comparisons you can make between uh, our concept of a will and how the Bible uses this idea here. And there are a few places where it does fall apart. For instance... For a will to be enforced, again, the testator must die. And if uncle, long lost uncle dies, we don't expect him to come back. But Jesus dies and he does come back. He rises from the dead. And so he has not only made his wishes known through a will, but he is alive as the mediator of the covenant or the executor of the will to make sure that the the wishes that he has are carried out. There's no disputing that he mean this or that because he still lives. There's no threat, no hint of a threat that somehow the executor can can mess this up. He lives. Also, if you receive an inheritance, at some point you're going to die. And you've either spent the inheritance or maybe there's enough to leave to someone else. But you're going to die and hopefully you have a will to pass on whatever you have to the next person. But in the language that we're talking about here in this eternal inheritance, this will, the the, the blessings of this covenant pass to you. But while you will die physically, if Jesus doesn't return, you won't die eternally. And so they never pass from you to someone else. And so there are some places where the, the analogy breaks down, but there's a lot of places where it does makes sense and it communicates things to us. But the main point that he's making here is very simply just what he has said in verses 16 and 17. 15, 16, 17. Someone has to die. The person who made the will has to die. If they don't die, it's not in force. But verse 15, he died. It's in force. Jesus' death guarantees the promise of eternal inheritance to all those who Who have been called to receive it. Now with each of those previous reasons. That we've seen. Escaping from the wrath to come. And atonement. With all of those we have seen. That there are Old Testament shadows. That that pictured this. And so we have an Old Testament type here as well. The writer of Hebrews points us right to it. In verse 18. Therefore. Even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, a couple of things here. First, it is interesting to note the order here that things come to us. And what I mean is, verse 18, therefore, and, and you look at this, he gives us the new covenant He says, therefore, that's why this happened in the Old Covenant, which makes perfect sense. But sometimes I think we start thinking because the Old Testament comes in our Bible before the New Testament or because in time that occurred before the New Testament, we can almost think that what Jesus comes to do pictures the Old Testament instead of the opposite, which is really true that the Old Testament pictures what happens in the New Testament In time, yes, the Old Testament occurred first, but in the planning of God, in the mind of God, it's as if he's saying, this is what my son's going to come do, but until he comes and does it, I want to give you some pictures that illustrate it and anticipate it. And so here they are, and they're being worked out for these years, many years, but they're not the thing. And Christ doesn't come and base what he does on that. All of that's based on what Christ comes to do. So why are there animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? We don't say, why did Jesus come and die? Well, because there were animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. No. Why are there animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Because God planned from eternity past that Jesus would die on the cross to obtain eternal redemption. That's what he's going to come do. Let me give you a picture that illustrates it and anticipates it. Here it is. Christ's work is not modeled on the Old Testament. The Old Testament is modeled on Christ. The second thing is that we do see this picture there. It anticipates this happening. Verses 18 through 22 refer to Exodus 24 and a few other places. And it reminds us that everything pertaining to this Old Testament system, including the book of the law and the tabernacle and its furniture and the people, it was all sprinkled with blood. Just think about it. They build the tabernacle. It's new, beautiful tapestries, golden furniture. And what's one of the first things they do? They take blood and they sprinkle everything with blood. Aaron puts on the high priestly garments. They're new. They look new. They smell new. They sprinkle blood on it. They stain it with blood and the stink of blood. Even the book of the law, sprinkled with blood. Why? It's a constant reminder that the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And they point to Jesus, whose shed blood guarantees the promise, not only of forgiveness of sins, but also of blessing upon blessing, eternal inheritance to all those who have been called to receive it. What is this inheritance that you stand to receive? That you are receiving if you're in Christ? If someone tells you that you're in their will, you might have several questions, including, I would think, what are they leaving me? Maybe they tell you, maybe they don't. But I mean, it does make a bit of a difference, doesn't it? If they tell you I'm leaving you five dollars, you know, you might think, well, I'm glad that you thought of me and I will remember you fondly for that. But the promise of five dollars doesn't change a lot in my life But they could leave you a gift that significantly changes the way you think about things and the way you live. So it matters a bit. What is it that Christ is leaving to every follower of his? There are several ways to address this. One, I was thinking back this week to a sermon that Andrew Davies preached maybe 10 years ago. Everything is yours because you are Christ and Christ is God's. Some of you may remember that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. So then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. You remember that they were arguing over these different men. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. And if I remember Mr. Davies point here was that all of these men were blessings to the church, gifts to the church by God. And if you chose one above the others or ignored the rest by choosing the one, then you were ignoring God's gift to you all were yours and all were necessary but not just those men but he went on Paul goes on in his argument and says all things belong to you even the world a world that is fallen and that you're not to have an inordinate love toward and yet in Christ it is being redeemed and it will be remade renewed and it's yours It's for the saints. All things are yours. Not just the world, but life. And he's obviously talking about this life because he says life or death. Life. With all of its problems, with all the issues that you may feel in this physical life, with the the weaknesses that you know now. This life is yours. And not just yours in the sense that this is is my life. I'm going to live like I want to. Not that. It's yours because you belong to Christ. And he's redeemed your life, Christian. And not just life, but death. Again, if Christ doesn't come back, you will die. And that sometimes produces anxiety. And there's questions and we wonder, but it's yours. Christ has conquered the last enemy. And there's no need to have a terrified fear of death. He tells us what comes next. It's yours because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. But he also says things present. Right now, whatever you have to deal with, whatever your life is. Sicknesses, financial woes, whatever life is. Problems with home or work or children or whatever it is. Christ is king and he rules over that. And because he rules over that, you can have a confidence facing that, knowing that his grace will be sufficient for you, even in that. All things are yours. The blessings of God flow to you in this present life and in things to come. What blessings await the believer? The future is yours. Because you belong to the king. And he governs the future. All things are yours. Because you are his. And he is God's. Or. Another way to think of it, Christ gives to His church, He provides in His will, if you will, for His church, all temporal things. Life later, yes, but life now. Spiritual things, yes, but physical things. Again, what do you have that you haven't received? Nothing. I'm not talking health and wealth, prosperity, gospel at all. But God provides for His children. And His blessings flow to you. The, the ability to get up and go to work and earn a living is a blessing that flows to you from God. The food that we will eat in a little while is a blessing that comes to us from God. All good things are gifts that He gives. He gives all good things. He's the giver of good gifts. Romans 8 Ask the question, believer, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? What, what do you take out of that? There's, there's no asterisk that says except for these things. A familiar verse in Philippians chapter 4 Verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Certainly he supplies spiritual blessings. But honestly, right there, Paul's talking about, he's been talking about physical blessings. The Philippians have supplied his physical needs while he's in jail. And looking at them and their gift to him, he turns to them and says, and my God will supply all your needs. we, We can't cut out physical needs and say, You supplied me physically, but God won't take care of you physically. That doesn't mean, again, you'll have everything you want, you know. And again, you just start writing checks because they will never bounce. Paul also said, I've learned to be content right before this in Philippians 4. I've learned to be content with little or much. There was a while when I thought you'd forgotten about me, but you've renewed your interest. I appreciate it. Thank you for the gift. God will take care of you. But for a while, the gift wasn't coming. And he was content with little. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Writing of of himself and the way he approaches ministry. There's the truth that comes, but there's also the life that's lived. He says that he gives no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses. And he gives a long list of these. And then down in verse 10, he says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many riches, having nothing, yet possessing all things. I, I don't possess anything. I don't cling to anything, but there's a sense in which I own everything because God owns it all and I'm His his heir so all temporal things all physical good things God provides for his children all spiritual things Ephesians 1 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Christ He's blessed us with it. And you might could argue that since they're in heavenly places, that's that's later. But he goes on to say that we're seated with him in heavenly places now. So yeah, there's blessings waiting, but there's blessings here now. Spiritual blessings provided by the Father through Christ Jesus to his children. They pour out to you because you've been reconciled to God And Christ Himself has provided for it in His will. These are covenant blessings. that are yours. Not just the possibility of them, but they're yours because He died. And the will is in force. 2 Peter 1.3 Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything. We could include in that the things we've been talking about. Deliverance from the wrath to come. That is a spiritual blessing that flows to you through Jesus Christ. Justification. Reconciliation with God. Sanctification. Both initially and progressively. Adoption into the family of God. These spiritual good things and more are yours because of the work of Christ. All temporal things. All spiritual things all eternal things God hasn't just provided for life now for a few short years but then the inheritance is going to run out or, or you turn a certain age and you know, that, that trust fund's cut off and now you're on your own God has provided for you eternally 1 Peter 1 again, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. What a glorious inheritance. And if you are in Christ Jesus, it's not, it is reserved for you, but it's also yours now. And the benefits are already flowing to you. They're yours because our passage says a death has taken place so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So this isn't telling you that there's a wheel and you're in it and one day... There's going to be a death and when that death occurs, you'll inherit. No, this is in a sense like the reading of the will. Telling you that a death has occurred and you have believed in Jesus and you have inherited. I read that when Queen Elizabeth died, Prince William inherited an estate. He became Duke of somewhere else, Cornwall. <laughs> and he inherits an estate worth... They estimate $1.2 billion that provides him an annual income of around $28 million a year. Well, most of us could strap our belts down and live on that, I guess. But no, I mean, that's a lot of money. And there'll be even more one day if he lives past his father. But all of that pales in comparison to this inheritance. Inheritance. What is it? A few momentary pleasures. But God has promised life and life eternal. Blessing upon blessing, we sang, and covenant flood. The blessings of the new covenant are also, you might say, the terms of His will. And you can know that they flow to you if you're in Christ Jesus, because Jesus, who bequeathed them to you, died and rose again. And so He's the writer of the will, the testator, and He's the mediator of the covenant, the executor of His will. And His death confirms That the promise is sure and the estate cannot be lost to any of the heirs of promise. There can be no challenges to the will. The estate cannot be eaten up in taxes. Jesus' death ratified the covenant, this testament, it makes it officially valid. And so the ratification of this testament by the death of the testator makes the New Testament irrevocable. It's yours, Christian. With all the blessings that attend it. A few words of application. One. Seeing this, is it not obvious? Once again, that salvation is all of the free gift of God. Here's salvation. Expressed to us in terms of a will. Who works for an inheritance? I suppose there could be someone who tries to manipulate their children by saying, you know, if you don't do this, I'm cutting you out of my will. But God's not manipulative. You don't generally work for an inheritance. An inheritance is, is something that freely flows to you. It's, it's the choice of the person who's dying. I give them this. And here's salvation. And it comes to Rebels. God freely sets His heart on the unlovable and loves them and provides for their salvation. He Himself provides the appeasement for His wrath for the sins that you and I have committed so that we're reconciled to Him. And by the death of His Son that provides the atonement and the reconciliation, there's also all of these blessings flowing. The testator has died. The writer of the will has died. And so the will is in force. And all the blessings come your way. And faith receives what God has given in Christ Jesus. Here's a gift. It's mine. Second. A will is a wonderful thing. An inheritance can be a great thing. But if you really cared about the person who gave it, you might think as wonderful as the gift is, I'm so glad that they thought of me this way, that they gave me this, but how I would rather have them. It doesn't replace the loss, the grief that comes because someone died for that to flow to you. But in Christ Jesus, the one who died to make possible the will rose again And His death not only provides stuff, it provides access. He brings you to the Father. His death opens the door of reconciliation so that you can come to God. He bids us to come into the throne room of His grace, to come and have fellowship with Him. And it's this that provides it. God is not a father Who's so busy, he can't be bothered with you. And so he peppers you with gifts to try to buy you off and, and placate his guilty conscience. God does give his children good gifts, but the best gift that he gives to us is himself. He calls us to come to him. The psalmist said it this way, my flesh And my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. God himself is my inheritance. In Hebrews 8, the writer describes the relationship brought about by this new covenant in this way. And he's quoting the Old Testament, but he says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord... I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. These are terms of the new covenant, which are terms of the testament for which he died that flows to the believer. He's my God and I am his child. It's in the terms of the will. Third, how should you respond to such a gift? You hear that this is yours, believer, that all of this comes to you. What's an appropriate response? Well, there are a number of things that could be said, but what does the writer of Hebrews say? As he gives us all this instruction and he's laying out his argument for us, he comes finally in... Chapter 10 to an exhortation. Chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are the exhortations that he gives after he makes his case. Three, let us draw near. Don't stand back when God has opened the way for you to draw near. Christ's death has opened the way. The the veil has been rent. The blood has been spilt. Come near. Come near with boldness. Don't stand back. Let us hold fast. Don't waver. Don't be unbelieving. Don't doubt what He has said. A death has occurred that makes the terms of the will to be enforced. And all of these blessings flow to you, believer, because Christ died and He rose again. And so you have every confidence. You have every reason not to waver, but to hold fast and to believe and then consider one another. How you can encourage one another not to fail to draw near, not to waver, but to hold on, encourage one another, stimulate one another. We have just participated in the Lord's Supper before them uh, at the end of the, the prayer meeting. And I was thinking this week of how this passage fits. The Lord's Supper: a visual, tactile sermon. Proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And as we hear it, the message of this supper, what does it proclaim? Here's the broken body of Christ. Here's the blood of Christ. It saves me from the wrath to come. It atones for my sin, propitiating toward God and reconciling God to me. It washes away the guilt And the pollution of my sin. So that I'm free to come near to Him. But it also speaks of all of these covenant blessings. That flow to me. Because Jesus died. And the will is in force. They all flow to me. Because of Him. And so. Here's the broken body. Here's the shed blood. Here is this cup which is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood, or some translations, the new testament of my blood. And it guarantees the term of my will, the terms of my will, the terms of my testament are all yours. Well, I'll read the doxology at the end of the book of Hebrews. We'll be seated for just a moment of silence and then you're dismissed. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Endeavor. Amen.